Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Consumer advocate Ralph Nader spent the better part of two decades dreaming up a museum with a highly specific and slightly bizarre theme, tort law. In late 2015, that dream became a reality with the opening of the American Museum of Tort Law in downtown Winstead, Connecticut. Today, where we live, we are broadcasting live from inside that museum, and we'll be spending the hour talking with Ralph Nader. We'll check out the exhibits at the museum and talk about some upcoming events, including one coming up this weekend with a key figure behind the Oscar-winning story of Spotlight. Uh, We're also going to talk a bit about the role that uh, Ralph Nader hopes this museum will play in jumpstarting the hometown that he and I share. Yes, indeed, uh, Ralph Nader and I, as as many of you who've listened to the program for years know, are neighbors. We live on the same street in Winstead, Connecticut. So I I could have walked here today. Um, I had to drive because I had some equipment. But it's good to be here at the American Museum of Tort Law with you once again, Ralph Nader. Uh, welcome to where we live. Thank you very much. It's very convenient. It's very convenient. It's 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 and it's a beautiful space too. So tell us about this place. Why were you so committed to building an American Museum of Tort Law? Well, it's the first law museum in the world of any kind, which tells you something. And I thought that my hometown is the best place for it. And it deals with everyday experience of people. The reason why they come to the museum and are totally enthralled by it and educated by it is because unlike most museums that have a specific focus like sculpture or painting or a local town museum, this one relates to everybody's experience. Uh, they're on the highway in cars. They have hazardous workplaces, perhaps. They see pollution in the air or contaminated food or uh, incompetent health care or side effects of medicines. And tort law is a law of wrongful injury. So that if someone wrongfully injures you, you have a remedy. You can get compensation for your medical expenses, wage loss, pain and suffering, and you can go to court to do it. And the important thing about this museum, it shows the history of it, because in medieval times in England, they settled wrongful injuries by revenge uh, or blood money, and it led to a lot of tumult. And along came some people who said, why don't we do it in a court of law? Mm. And why don't we set certain standards of uh, uh, principles uh, where people can get recovery and uh, and build on this law? And and we inherited it from uh, England and expanded it. Uh, And it's one of the great pillars of freedom in our country. Uh, I mean, it's something we should be proud of. Unfortunately, the insurance industry and others are always running it into the ground and uh, creating fake cases that look stupid. Well, and you just wrote a piece for Harper's called Suing for Justice, Your Lawsuits Are Good for America. I think probably one of the reasons why there aren't other law museums is the law just, it, it seems to get a bad rap, right? The whole idea that you can sue for something in America has been seen over the course of the last several decades as somehow a, a bad thing as opposed to a benefit of being an American. That's corporate propaganda. And you might, I have a simple answer to that. Would you like to live in a country where you couldn't sue anybody? We have names for countries like that overseas. Uh, it's part of freedom uh, to pursue the law. Somebody messes with you, uh, seriously uh, damages your reputation, interferes with your business uh, to try to 
put you into bankruptcy, injures you because it's an incompetent doctor or a bad side effect of a, of a pharmaceutical product, flammable fabrics. We have a toy section here in the museum. The kids love that. They learn how toys can be built safely, but they can also be built harmfully. They can have sharp cutting edges. Uh, they, the chemistry set can be constructed in a way where it can explode uh, in front of a child. So uh, we have to educate this. I mean, I went to school, you know, elementary, high school, college, and we never studied the civil justice system. We never studied this defense uh, of people's physical safety, health, and integrity. And we hope community colleges and uh, colleges will really teach the law. Uh, it doesn't have to be as intricate as law school, but if you don't know your rights, you're not likely to use your rights. You, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, corporations, corporate lawyers, will, will make up these cases that then um, become uh, myth. They become yeah. fact in people's mind, and it paints a picture of greedy plaintiffs who don't take enough personal responsibility. Now, it's probably pretty fair to say that over the course of history, there are some people who were greedy and there are some people who uh, have put forward baseless claims. But what you're saying is, overwhelmingly, people are looking to try to get something that, that they should get from the, the people that they're suing. Yeah, I mean, who, who, who doesn't know anybody who didn't pick up an infection in a hospital? You're not supposed to go to a hospital and pick up an infection. There are ways to reduce that, and some hospitals are doing that successfully, starting with washing hands, for example, for doctors and nurses. About 400,000 coal miners died from uh, the coal dust that they were breathing, black lung disease is called, or a collapse of the coal mine shaft uh, from 1890 to 1990. 400, that's almost as many soldiers, uh, U.S. soldiers as died in World War II. Every year, uh, there's like 60,000 workplace-related deaths, according to OSHA. 100,000, that's 2,000 a week medical malpractice uh, deaths, according to the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, we have a real serious problem. There's 65,000 people who die from air pollution, according to EPA. Uh, and tort law provides a remedy. Uh, it's a difficult remedy to pursue. It's very hard to win these cases in court up against Exxon and Mobil, uh, Exxon Mobil or General Motors or Pfizer or Merck or a copper company with a smelter. It's very hard. Uh, and uh, the propaganda makes it like, oh, it's very easy. You know, you, you, you lose an arm, you walk in, you, you, you wave your other arm, you, you got a lawyer with a slick, uh, uh, you know, uh, use of words, and a jury gives you a few million bucks. No. It's very hard. The judge is in control. Any, any case that is frivolous gets thrown out on a motion to dismiss, and the lawyer's reputation is, is impaired. The important thing is, unlike any country in the world, you can go to a lawyer in, in a wrongful injury. You're wrongfully injured. You go to a lawyer. It's a contingent fee. You only pay the lawyer if the lawyer prevails for you. So you don't have to be rich. Uh, t to get that ticket admission to a court of law and a trial by jury. And one thing this museum is trying to do, John, is encourage people to uh, recognize the, the critical importance of jury service. It's in our Seventh Amendment, the Constitution. It's one of the most wonderful democratic institutions. Uh, juries walk in. Uh, they don't have an ax to grind. They have no future ambition. Uh, they're, they're shaped and disciplined by the judge in terms of what they can consider in terms of fact, and they feel very good when they leave it. They may grumble when they come in, 
but they really feel very good when they leave, uh, uh, leave their exercise of jury duty. You, you, you make a, a compelling case for, uh, obviously, the necessity for us to think more about the system, engage more in the system, but this museum itself is, is attempting to do that by making people experience it in a different way, and I, I think you know, for our, our radio listening audience, maybe you should just describe our backdrop right now. What's sitting right behind us? This is a 1963 Corvair. The Corvair had a lot of problems, one of which it was, it, it was a unique design. It has the engine in the rear. It's a beautiful car, uh, and it came out in 1959. It had about a 10-year uh, life before GM dispatched it. Uh, but it, uh, it had a rollover propensity. Uh, it fishtailed on t- uh, turning on a curve. It also has a carbon monoxide leakage problem when your heater was on, and you can't taste, smell carbon monoxide, but it's not very good for you. And, and that the driver's shaft, the uh, uh, steering shaft, uh, tended to ram back into the driver in a left, uh, uh, left collision, left front collision. Otherwise, really a pretty car. Right? You know. <laughs> Other than those things. But it's there because uh, GM uh, uh, hired private detectives in the 1960s to follow me because I was criticizing their product, especially their Corvair. And they went down to Congress and they got caught, the private detectives. And that led to uh, Senator Ribicoff from Connecticut uh, holding hearings. And he summoned the heads of GM and the head of the private detective firm, and, and that got the whole momentum going for the motor vehicle uh, highway and safety laws that passed in 1966 under Lyndon Johnson, and those laws irregularly enforced have saved well over uh, three million lives in the U.S., and millions of injuries prevented, and uh, affected imports. Uh, any, any car company wanted to export to the U.S. from Europe or Japan had to meet our standards. Are, are the standards uh, for things like airbags and seatbelts and other safety devices on cars, uh, as you look back at your career, is that the thing you're proudest of? Is that the thing that you think saved the most lives, changed the most uh, in American society? You know, well, probably. I mean, it's very tangible to people. I mean, you can say, well, we've reduced lead uh, because we take push to get lead out of uh, gasoline, tetraethyled, and out of lead paint. And lead was killing and injuring and sickening a lot of people, kids especially. But it's not quite as tangible as cars. I mean, people go into cars now, they have seat belts, they have airbags, they have padded dash panels, they have head restraints, they have side protection that they can't see and a side uh, impact. Uh, the brakes are better, the tires are better. It, it, they can see it, you know, it's, it's, very, very, it's very tangible. And, and the interesting thing, it's yeah. spread all over the world, although we're still having problems in places like Brazil and other countries, they, they have... European and U.S. manufactured cars, and they're manufactured in Brazil, and they don't put airbags in. So we're trying to even it out. Like a human life's a human life. When you look around this museum, um, it would be easy for people who've not been here to to think, well, a law museum might be really boring to look at. I mean, what you're going to have people wearing suits like mannequins. I mean, what's it going to look like exactly? But you've got these huge um, cartoons that illustrate these cases. And I guess I'm just wondering if you can talk about the the visual style of the place a little bit and talk about what you were trying to do to engage people with some of these stories, because they really are stories, right? They're human stories, great stories. They're stories of tragedies, stories of justice, stories of improving products later on because companies don't want to be sued uh, so that 
tort law has really three functions. You're injured wrongfully, you go to a contingent fee lawyer, you go to court, you, you hope you can get compensation for your lost wages or medical expenses or pain and suffering. Uh, then it's an open court, so the reporters are there, a very highly refereed uh, decision. If you, uh, if you can appeal if you lose, or the other side can appeal. It's also open court. There's a full transcript. It's the most open uh, part of our three branches of government, and the most accountable as well. And, uh, and then let's say the decision comes out, and the reporters say, uh, X product is, has been shown to be very dangerous, and there are millions of these products in people's homes or garages or whatever. And pretty soon the other companies say, we don't want to be sued. You know, a drug company will say, we don't want to be sued. We better be more careful. So tort law has three functions. It compensates for wrongful injury, it discloses hazards, and it deters unsafe practices across the land. But it also does something else. It overcomes the political cowardliness of legislatures and regulatory agencies because they know they're sitting on this information like the lead uh, situation in Flint, for example, mm -hmm. Michigan. They're sitting on this information and the corporate lobbyists are all over them and they're giving campaign cash to lawmakers, not doing anything year after year after year after year. Well, suddenly there's a lawsuit and all the press is covering it and it comes to the attention of the legislature. And this actually happened with tire safety legislation. There were some lawsuits in Akron against Ohio, against the tire companies, and the information got to Senator Gaylord Nelson from Wisconsin, and he uh, introduced it uh, in a speech on the Senate floor, and he introduced the tire safety bill, and it got passed, because the evidence from these uh, lawsuits, uh, you know, under oath and refereed, uh, was very valuable uh, to the legislature. So that's happened time and time again with the Food and Drug Administration, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the Auto Safety Agency. So you see, out of these lawsuits that are invoked by ordinary people, just think of the impact. Ordinary people can get millions of products recalled, for example, because they take that case to court. And yet, you know, people grow up like, oh, I don't want to sue, you know, it's like it's a shameful thing to, sh to sue. It's not a sh shameful thing to sue. That's what our founding fathers developed the Constitution. That's why there's a seventh amendment to the Constitution and, and a right of trial by jury. When, uh, when Rick uh, Newman, executive director who, who practiced as a trial lawyer and as a scholar on tort law, takes people through the museum, some of them are trembling with excitement. They're so, I mean, they see the tobacco litigation, the, the asbestos litigation. Now there's almost no asbestos in our country. That's killed hundreds of thousands of people, starting with the shipyard workers. Uh, in, 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 in our country. And it's tobacco, it really disciplined and got the tobacco industry under regulation and produced uh, money to pay for some of the damage that the tobacco industry has done. So we have descriptions of all of these. Well, uh, you mentioned Flint, Michigan earlier, and I guess I'm wondering if you feel as though this, this museum will then start to include stories like that. This seems like a, a story that will in 10 years have a place here in the museum. Indeed. We, we have an expansion plan for the museum uh, to expand it uh, uh, quite extensively uh, with a full-size courtroom and advanced uh, uh, media facilities, web facilities, uh, maybe study cubicles uh, for, for scholars to come. Uh, we have to raise the money f for it. Uh, we don't get government money for these things. 
You can imagine the corporate lobbyists in Hartford or elsewhere <laughs> saying, you're going to use tax money for this? Uh, so we're volunteering uh, for people to help build it. And then it can be streamed all over the country and the world. There is a retired high jurist from India who came here. And it's amazing how he encapsulated the whole thing. At the end of his tour, uh, it was conducted by Rick Newman, uh, he said, I know what you're doing here. You're bringing the law to the people. You see, if, if we don't understand the law, how can we use it? Don't think it's just for lawyers. Uh, th this is a, a, a brilliantly designed museum for communicating visually, historically, things that people relate to in their daily experience. That's why they get so excited, because it relates to the things they interact with every day. We're talking with Ralph Nader, of course, the longtime consumer advocate. Uh, we're going to be talking about his, his latest book called Return to Sender, Unanswered Letters to the President. When we come back from a break, we'll be talking more about tort law with Ralph Nader. We'll be talking about his latest book. And, of course, we'll also be talking about the 2016 presidential campaign. This is Where We Live. Live from the American Museum of Tort Law in Winstead, Connecticut, this is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. My guest today is Ralph Nader, the founder of this museum, right here in my hometown of Winstead. Um, before we get into some of the stuff that I want to talk to you about around the 2016 presidential race, I, I do want to talk about this book that you put out last year, and it's, it's fascinating. It's um, Unanswered Letters to the President from 2001 to 2015. It's called Return to Sender. Um, you are a letter writer, uh, and you write a lot of letters. Why did you decide to collect some of the letters that you wrote to the President of the United States? Well, I was pretty upset they didn't answer the letters. <laughs> they didn't even acknowledge <laughs> the letters. You know, prior presidents to Bush and Clinton and Obama, they used to, uh, you know, basically on White House stationery, thank you for your letter. Uh, and I'm sure they do for some letters, uh, invitations to go to high school graduations. They send their regrets. But these are substantive letters uh, on subjects on people's minds. And, uh, and so I, I, I thought, well, uh, as a last resort, let's put them in a book. But there's another reason for the book, and that's to encourage people to write letters to their legislators, their mayors, their town council. Because let's say the letter isn't answered. They can put it up on their uh, website or blog or Facebook, or, and, and they can send it to their friends. They can send it to a local newspaper. Uh, in, in short, it commits them. It, it sort of gets them to first base as civic advocates. So, it, it, you, I mean, people can gripe about something with their friends, and they go nowhere. But if you write a letter, you, you're a bit more advanced in terms of your uh, commitment. But, but you're also sort of making the case that, you know, a lot of people write letters and they don't get, they don't get any action. Nobody gets back to them. Yeah. People want to hear back from their representatives. Has it been your experience, uh, you know, aside from just these letters here, that the letters that you've written to lawmakers over the years, that they don't get uh, re any response? Increasingly, they're uh, basically giving you the back of their hand. And that's true for members of Congress. It's never used to be true. I'm talking about substantive letters. I mean, you write a senator and say you've lost your VA check. They will write back, and they'll try to find your VA check. But substantive letters, they don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, part of it is the Internet. Part of it is email. Uh, but I, I believe a written letter in the postal system is, gonna, is, is, the, is rare now, So it, unlike a, a million emails that go to a member of Congress. So that's why 
preferred a, a written letter. I mean, for example, we hear now about uh, the Zika virus, and, and before that it was Ebola, and we really have an epidemic threat in the world, a pandemic threat, of all kinds of viruses and bacteria. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote <clears throat> President Obama <clears throat> a letter by an E. coli that was uh, about to expire in a petri dish in Austria. Okay, so again, you, you were writing from the, <laughs> yeah. from the viewpoint of, of E. coli. Right, and this little E. coli wanted to redeem its miserable life, and so it wrote a letter uh, to Obama <clears throat> saying, you want to talk about terrorism? Uh, I'll tell you about terrorism. How about bacteria and viruses and all over the world? And look how many died from the influenza virus in World War I, 50 million people and so on. Why don't you do more about it? And why don't you help Congress do more about it and expand your budget? Uh, these are the real terrorists in terms of the numbers of people uh, who, who, be, who can lose their life. Well, he didn't answer. And uh, so I sent it to the Centers for Disease Control. They got a real kick out of it. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was a little bit of support, you know, yeah. for, for their work and uh, in Atlanta. Uh, I got a little so frustrated that I wrote Bush and Obama a letter and said, what is your policy of answering letters from citizens on substantive issues? And they didn't answer that either. <laughs> uh, so I'm not saying it's going to stay that way. The Prime Minister of Canada automatically answer, recognizes your letter, yeah. even if uh, it was critical of him. It's, it's, a, it's a way of courtesy of recognizing a civic engagement said they were going to send it to the relevant ministry. Uh, so, you know, at times you don't even know whether it got to the uh, White House. I would send it by mail and I would send it by fax. And a couple of years ago, they abolished the fax machine in the White House. So now it's only mail or email. Uh, <laughs> but we got to break through. Look, they, they work for us, right, John? Yeah. They work for us. I mean, this, this imperious attitude these politicians have in gerrymandered districts, especially. Well, you know, it, it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, just recently a, a lot of us in our um, in our business have been have been talking about the things that President Obama has said about the press. He and you have both been very critical of how the press has given a pass to Donald Trump. It's even emboldened Donald Trump as he goes on this quest to become the next president of the United States. The, the thing to many of us in the press that we find interesting about President Obama uh, scolding the press over this is is that his administration has been very bad at um, responding to Freedom of Information Act requests. When, when his office is asked for information, uh, that is often rebuffed. So I, I guess I'm wondering about the, about the role of the press, about what you think the press is able to do right now and how much the press tries to do things, that whether it's politicians or corporations, they, they just don't allow us to get the information. I mean, it's, it's one thing for President Obama to say that we need to do a better job of covering Donald Trump, but it would be awful nice if if he would respond to some of our FOIA requests. <laughs> That's very true. It's a very secret administration, like other administrations, but he promised when he was elected, this is going to be open administration, has not been. He has <clears throat> prosecuted more people, more reporters under the Espionage Act for leaks than all presidents before him. I think six prosecutions, which is unheard of under the Espionage Act. You go after a reporter. Uh, people have the right to know. A secret government is bad government. Secret government is often illegal government. And he hasn't had that, uh, that good a record. He hasn't had that many press conferences either. Uh, I don't want to generalize about the press. There's some good reporters, uh, really great uh, editors. 
But by and large, the press has not risen to the level of its significance uh, as, as being the only business actually protected by our Constitution and the First Amendment, freedom of the press. They've been dragged down by people like Trump and Cruz and you know, politicians basically who uh, use, use slogans, uh, don't have substantive information for the people to use, don't really tell them what they're going to do uh, except in a bombastic way if they're elected. And uh, what's happened is the press has catered to that. They've pandered to that. Uh, Fox News, CNN, why? Because it's big business now. See, unlike all other presidential campaigns, there have been huge ratings for these debates, right? Huge ratings, millions of people, up to 24 million people for one debate that Trump and others were in. That means huge advertising revenues. And so now the, the process of presidential primaries has become commercialized, it has become big business. And none of us ask the question, who the hell are these media companies deciding when they're going to be debates, where the debates are going to be, who's on tier one and tier two of the presidential uh, candidates, what reporters are going to ask what questions. This is a public process. It shouldn't be determined by commercial operation. Well, what system would work better? Because we've been heading toward this for a very long time, and I think a lot of us feel that this doesn't make any sense. But what what system should we have in place for this? There should be a public debate uh, commission that sponsors debates, not just at the presidential level, but at the state and and local level. I mean, why do we ration debates? People love debates. Why do we ration debates? It should be a public function. We have public parks, public schools, public elections. We should have public debates. Most people don't know that the Commission on Presidential Debates, which you'll be hearing about for the uh, presidential debates in the fall, is simply a private corporation created in 1987 by the Republican Democratic parties to get rid of the League of Women Voters who used to sponsor these debates. They thought the League of Women Voters was too uppity, too independent. So now we have uh, a presidential debate commission, which is just a private company, funded by Anheuser-Busch, Ford, AT&T, hospitality suites. They decide who gets on the debate, who doesn't get on the debate. The only way to reach tens of millions of people for third-party candidates like Green Party, Libertarians, to get on the debate I couldn't get on the debates. I had four or five national polls who wanted me on those presidential debates, if only to keep the viewers awake, right? Uh, so <laughs> I couldn't get on. But you see, it's been commercialized. Uh, imagine our debates, our presidential debates, sponsored by a beer company. I mean, we've got to wake up in this country. Less than 1% of the people active in each congressional district can turn this country around on 30 major issues as long as they have majority opinion behind them, like minimum wage, full Medicare for all, cracking down on corporate crime, changing our corrupt tax system, uh, public funding of public uh, campaigns voluntarily on a checkoff uh, on the IRS tax retirement. There there are all kinds of solutions in this country. Uh, But as I say, it's easier than we think to make change. And when people hear me say, less than 1%, I say, sure. Look what we've done with a fraction of 1%. Safer automobiles, we got environmental laws through, occupational health and safety is a problem of getting them enforced, to be sure, but at least they're, they're on the books. Millions of products recalled. We never had more than a few dozen people around the country spending two to 300 hours a year supporting us in Washington uh, in terms of lobbying their representatives and senators. 
If people grow up think it's impossible to do anything, to change things, make a better country, guess what? Yeah. It's impossible to do anything, change anything, make a better country. <laughs> it gets to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's why we have to have civic skill and experience courses in our schools, not just looking at computers, learning to connect with the community. Our community colleges, 1,200 of them, they could train millions of young people. So, so into being engaged citizens. What do you make of, of all the people who are turning out to, to rallies, first-time voters, both for Donald Trump and for Bernie Sanders? Not, not that the other candidates in the race don't have their supporters, but certainly we've seen something of a movement with both of these people, right? There, there are thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of people who are engaged in the process in a new way. How do you view that? That's very encouraging. I mean, I, I don't remember any time in American history where people, uh, two candidates as far apart from each other, Trump and Bernie Sanders, are appealing for the same voters, the blue-collar, white male, for example, voters. That's pretty extraordinary. And, uh, it, I mean, it is nice that people are watching the debates, but they're so vacuous. I mean, the Democrat debates are, are um, more content, I think, between Hillary try, desperately trying to mimic uh, Bernie so she can be a temporary progressive. But what, what have you thought before, of that? Yeah. Before she becomes a militarist again and a Wall Street corporatist. Well, what have you thought of that? Even uh, today on NPR, there were, yeah. there were some stories about that, just, just showing the ways in which some of her, uh, her positions have changed over the course of this, this long campaign. Do you feel that Bernie Sanders is changing Hillary Clinton as, as a candidate, as a president, or just temporarily during, during this time, uh, during the primaries? Oh, he's turning her to the progressive every day. But, but everybody who knows her knows that it's just rhetoric. I, I heard that piece on, uh, on your station. It was very good. And they went through uh, her evolution on the minimum wage. She was way behind on that. And then they went through it on trade. And she, you know, she was for the, the TPP, Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, which is uh, not good for this country. And then she was asked, well, what do you think of it last year when she was a candidate? And she said, uh, well, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't say. Well, she was for it when she hadn't seen it when she was Secretary of State, you see. And then she decided a few months later with Bernie uh, pushing her, in effect, uh, that uh, she was not for it. Uh, you know, not a total denunciation. So, but what, uh, that's what competition does. You see, that's why competition and primary is very important. You, you you wrote a piece in the Washington Post in which you essentially said that Bernie Sanders did the right thing by running as a Democrat. It's not something you would have done. It's something people wondered if you would have ever done. Um, talk talk about that a little bit. I mean, why do you think it was smart for Bernie Sanders, who clearly is not representative of the Democratic Party that Hillary Clinton represents, uh, that he decided to run, even though he's an independent, as a Democrat this time? Because his whole career is one really of a progressive Democrat. He's an old-fashioned Roosevelt uh, New Dealer, even though he calls himself a Democratic Socialist. And so he votes with the Democrats in Congress. He caucuses with them in Congress. He's head of a uh, veterans uh, committee uh, in the Senate. So in all but name, he's a, he's a Democrat. So that's why I thought he, sh he should run as a Democrat. The other reason is if he dared to run in a two-party tyranny-dominated country uh, as an independent or as a third party, you can't believe what could, they, they would have done to him. First of all, they would have kept him out of the debates. Second, they would have harassed him uh, into uh, trying to get on the ballot. He would have to spend a huge amount of money, 50 state ballots he would have had to get on. They would have harassed his petitioners on the street. 
They would have put fake names on the petition and then accuse them in front of the press of fraudulent petition gathering. They would have sued him in state after state to drain his resources. They would have gone to petitioner's home and threatened them with criminal prosecution. How do I know this? Because that's what they did to me. <laughs> I was going to ask. This sounds personal, Ralph, somehow. <laughs> so he was smart running as a Democrat. Yeah. He didn't have to worry about, about all these things. Although they're going to start the, the corporate Democrats around Hillary. You wait and see the next few days and weeks. Drop out. Drop out, Bernie. You've done enough. You don't want to undermine Hillary. Uh, I don't think he's going to take that anymore. For, for, from, a, from a purely issues standpoint, do you support Bernie Sanders' campaign? I mean, what, what do you think of, of where he stands, the, the issues that he's raising? Obviously, he's raising some of the same issues about uh, corporations that you have over the years. I mean, do you, do you support him? I support a lot of his positions. He, he's, he hasn't filled out the foreign and military policies yet, although he's better than Hillary in terms of what he said and done. You know, uh, Hillary's never seen a war she doesn't like, never seen a weapon system she doesn't like. She didn't start out that way as a young lawyer out of Wellesley. She's, it's opportunism, Clinton style. You go with the power flow. Only now, you see, the, the public it has its own power flow. The, the voters, the turnout, the demonstrations, the support for Bernie Sanders. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, look what he's proved. He just proved you don't have to go to fat cat uh, fundraisers in Beverly Hills or Park Avenue in New York. He's raised over $150 million. The average contribution is 27 bucks. So he, he, that alone is a great legacy for future candidates. Say They don't have to be prisoners of these super PACs who own them and pull the strings of a few billionaires, you know, picking their favorite what, what, candidate. What are, the, what are the holes he needs to fill in? What are the things that you, you think he still needs to, to be stronger on in foreign policy? He's got to be stronger on the military budget and the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell address. Because uh, you, you have 55% of the operating budget of the federal government is military budget. I wonder why your bridges and drinking water systems are not repaired, your schools are crumbling, and uh, why, why is it you, you don't have modernized libraries or community health clinics? Because they're going into nuclear subs and uh, F-35s. I mean, we have enough firepower in terms of TNT to blow up the world 300 times and make the rubble bounce. Do we really need that much? You know, you ask an ordinary American, have you heard of the Trident submarine, you know, down in Groton? Yeah, we heard of the Trident submarine. You know about multiple nuclear warheads? I have vaguely. Well, let's say the Trident submarine unloaded its entire weaponry uh, on the world. One submarine. How many cities could it blow up in one hour around the world? They have no idea. It's 200 or so. So how many do we need? So the military industries become a jobs industry. Well, there are a lot of jobs for building modern mass transit, right? We don't have to have imported New York subway cars from some foreign country, which is what, what happened years ago. There are all kinds of jobs to repair the public works in America. What's interesting is that during those debates, which I think we, we both feel have been somewhat vacuous, especially some of the Republican debates with the name-calling, th there was one candidate who actually said, you know, what if we didn't spend so much money on the military and we, we put that all to work on rebuilding America? And that was Donald Trump. He, yeah. he actually said that, during, he said that during a debate. And I guess I'm, I mean, I'm wondering if you feel like you could take him at his word, but... Um, 
he, he's been the only one to broach it, I think. Yeah, well, because, you know, he's a real estate developer. He's a builder. He comes with credibility on that. I think that appeals to a lot of blue-collar workers. They see their community crumbling. They, they know that it needs repair. They know you can't export these jobs to China. They know they're good-paying jobs right at home. That's one of the reasons for his appeal. I might say Rand Paul also criticized the military budget. There's a left-right critique coming out on this military. But, the but waste I think, is so <laughs> mind-boggling, you cannot believe, you, it's impossible to exaggerate the waste. I mean, they were, they were building a gas station. All right, it's a natural gas gas station in Afghanistan. It was supposed to come in at $400,000. How about $40 million? $40 million. I mean, there are hundreds of examples like that. Cost overruns, planes that were supposed to cost $50 million, they end up costing $150 million. Then they don't work. Uh, it's because we're not watchdogging our government enough. You know, You've had a lot of good political programs on, but, and I've listened to a lot of them. You have a great program. I've listened to a lot of them. But you see, there's one thing that people have to realize. When you hear a neighbor or friend say, I'm not into politics, and you say, you're not into politics, huh? You know a little bit of history around the world? You know what happens to societies where you're not into politics? Politics turns on you. Mm-hmm. They turn on you. So this whole luxury, like, ah, pox on all their houses, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to live my private life and uh, try to enjoy myself and have a good livelihood. It doesn't work that way. We're all interdependent, more than ever. We, we're talking with Ralph Nader, of course, the consumer advocate, and he's the founder of the American Museum of Tort Law, and that's where we're broadcasting from today. His most recent book is Return to Sender, Unanswered Letters to the President. When we come back, we'll get some uh, questions from our audience here at the American Museum of Tort Law on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're broadcasting live from the American Museum of Tort Law in my little hometown of Winstead, Connecticut. Ralph Nader is a, a proud Winstead native who has uh, built this museum right here to celebrate the law. The American Museum of Tort Law is the first museum of its kind. We're going to get some questions from our audience in just a moment. But you've been talking about you know, reawakening civic life in America. And you've got a huge event that you're planning in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about this thing? Yeah, we want to generate the rumble from the people, so Washington hears it. Um, and uh, Nixon signed a lot of good laws when he was president because he heard from the rumble from the people coming out of the 60s. Uh, so we, we have four days uh, scheduled at Constitution Hall, and they're designed to drive home one major point, which is we got a lot of uh, problems in this country we, uh, we don't deserve, and we've got a lot of solutions we're not applying. And that's the democracy gap. And we've got to strengthen our democracy so we can put these solutions to work on the ground. And it's not secret solutions on energy, housing, public transit, health care, uh, pollution control, climate, you name it. Uh, we, we've got a lot of work to do, but we've got a lot to work with. And so the days are going to get people's morale up. We're going to have like 15 groups have been working in Washington with spectacular success to get dangerous drugs off, to get more nutrition into food. And they're going to uh, showcase themselves by way of saying, look, look what we did with this tiny budget to improve your life out there in America. We only had a few hundred people or a few thousand people out there in congressional districts. Isn't it true that we can make a lot of change easier than we think? And the second one is going to be authors and uh, uh, documentary filmmakers, musicians, poets who have been critical of wrongdoing in the country. 
and uh, suggesting what should be right, to try to open up the commercial media, which is using our public airways free and filling it with entertainment, advertisement, and corporate hedonism. This, this program, a great exception. <laughs> the third is peace over war. I've always thought that retired uh, high-level uh, generals, admirals, national security officials, and diplomats have great credibility in pulling Washington back from plunging into war, like Iraq and Libya, uh, Hillary's war, by the way. And uh, they're not organized. And I think if there's a secretariat for them, uh, and they're all over the country, and, and, and they don't have an ax to grind, they've got a lot of wisdom, and who's going to question their loyalty? These top-level people... Uh, backed by veterans groups, Veterans for Peace is yeah. one of my preferences. And the fourth one is going to try to develop a citizen summons tool of Congress, of senators and representatives, where the citizens organize around an issue. Let's say they want public works, they want money for repairing their communities, uh, and they summon the senators and representatives to their own town meetings instead of the reverse. And they say, you are summoned on a certain date in the town hall. Here's the agenda. Here's your homework, Senator. You're going to know what we're talking about. Uh, to reverse that dynamic, because, look, the Constitution starts not we the Congress. It starts we the people. Not we the corporation. We the people. And so we're having a lot of exciting subject matter for people to sink their teeth in through this citizen summit. This is like a four-day-long event? Yeah, it's a, it's a civic marathon. A civic, and when, when does this marathon start? It's uh, May 23, 24, 25, and 26 in historic Constitution Hall. You know, there are physical marathons, okay? We want serious people who don't suffer from justice fatigue, short attention spans. We want, we want people who want to turn this country around for their descendants, if not for themselves. <laughs> justice fatigue, I like the idea. Um, uh, does anybody have a question from our audience here at the American Museum of Tort Law? Um, just raise your hand and we'll get you the microphone. You, we mentioned when we were first talking about, about how important tort law is and why you started this museum, about the, the many types of cases, personal injury and whatnot. What do you see as the biggest threat right now? I mean, so many products have gotten so much safer. But you do mention the, the problem of people going into hospitals and acquiring infections. I mean, is there something specific that you would look at right now in American society and say, this is one of the big issues that we haven't yet quite solved? Yeah, the fastest one to do anything about is medical errors or medical malpractice, hospital malpractice, hospital-induced infections, as I mentioned, uh, and side effects of pharmaceuticals. Uh, they're taking about 400,000 lives a year, premature, and uh, they're preventable. Uh, there are ways where the Food and Drug Administration can crack down on them better, there are ways where doctors can discipline the bad doctors in their midst, or the state agencies can do that. And there are a lot of hospitals now who are developing checklists in order to reduce hospital-induced infection. So that's, you know, that, that's a good start. Uh, the bigger issues, of course, are the effects coming from uh, pandemics, epidemics, uh, which we have to have uh, adequate budgets for, and working with the World Health Organization. We just spend money in the wrong area. I mean, uh, the, the, just to give you an example, the World Health Organization, John, has a budget smaller than one of the bigger hospitals in Boston and New York. And they're supposed to deal with epidemics and all kinds of illnesses and sicknesses all over the world. 
so we have to reorder our, pri our priorities. Maybe you'll ask uh, the congressman tomorrow whether he needs a new nuclear sub out of Groton. Watch, <laughs> him, watch him burp on that one. I, I will say I do ask him about that every time. Um, well, and, and you bring this up, I think you brought it up when we were talking about the letter that you wrote from the uh, viewpoint of E. coli, um, and I know that you've written about this extens extensively, that we seem to have a, a problem with proportionality in, in America, where if, if someone tragically gets a hold of a gun uh, and shoots people and says that it is on behalf of ISIS, we are now incredibly worried about domestic terrorism. Um, but the number of people who die from hospital infections, the number of people who die from any number of other things, the things that you've worked, worked on over the years, we, we, don't seem to, we don't seem to take those things as serious. Like, I guess I'm wondering why we have that problem with proportionality. Like mm. 30,000 people die in auto accidents and we start to really take some notice of it. Uh, 30,000 people die from handguns. We start to take some notice of it, but Congress doesn't really do anything about it. Why do we have such an issue about this? One terrorist attack also s sets into motion all this machinery, and, and we can't do that for, for a hospital-inquired yeah, infection. Yeah, like 200 Americans a day at least die from hospital-induced infections, according to Centers for Disease Control. That's 200 a, a day, right? Yeah. What if there was shooting 200 a day? Uh, the difference, the reason why is we're sort of biologically structured to fear anthropomorphic attacks like people... Uh, street crime or, or uh, terrorists. Uh, silent violence, we're not quite structured. We have to use our minds for silent violence. Like, people know exactly what to do with the f when there's a fire. They run away or they try to put it out or call the fire department because it's physical, right? But something like lead in, in their children's body, that is silent violence. And so we, that's why we have to develop our mind to foresee and forestall because by far the biggest deaths and injuries and sickness in our country are silent violences often traced to commercial negligence like air pollution, water pollution, and pesticide contamination. Um, we just have a couple minutes left, but I guess I'm wondering if you feel like there's something positive that you think we can draw out of what's happened during this 2016 campaign. As we said, a lot more people are getting civically active. People are getting active on behalf of candidates who we didn't think would have much of a chance. Um, do you believe that there's going to be some residue in the way we, we consider politics and politicians and in, in the way that we decide to get active in politics coming out of this election? Yeah, definitely. Uh, in terms of raising money in small amounts, uh, Bernie Sanders has broken through that historically. So that's one uh, encouragement for future candidates. The second is they are watching the debates, and uh, they don't have to have a Trump uh, circus barker to get them to watch the debates. Maybe they're now... Uh, getting their feet wet and watching candidates debate, and maybe they can inject uh, as a citizenry uh, more serious material uh, for the debate. But the one thing I don't want to leave this program without is that nobody in Winstead asks us a question. There's got to be a question out there. <laughs> well, you, well we, we, have time. we have time for one very quick question, if we have one. Go ahead. How can the press improve its role in conducting the debates in terms of asking more pointed questions and holding the candidates to making responses that are relevant? Uh, one way is for us to demand by calling editors and reporters and saying, look, why aren't you asking about why the Pentagon is not auditable? you got $700 billion and, and it can't be audited. Every other federal agency is audited. And maybe you, you put that in their mind. So that's something nobody can stop you from doing. But over the long run, we have to have debates sponsored 
by citizen groups and citizen organizations, uh, not just by commercial media. They have different motivations. But I always try to send sample questions to reporters, uh, and they may not have thought of it. So if, if they're there, they can ask that question. Winstead, Connecticut is the home of this museum. It's, it's where you grew up. Did you see a, a, a real good future for, for, for Winstead? We have another museum maybe opening down the street. The, uh, the American Mural Project is here. Did, were you hoping that this would do something to jumpstart our little hometown? Yeah, of course. And we have a community lawyer here, which uh, should be community lawyers and community technologists and cities all over the country and towns that save people a lot of money. Uh, there's all kinds of ways. And Winston also has great water resources, and it's uh, physically the size of Manhattan, just slightly smaller in Manhattan. Not quite as populated, though. <laughs> it's, it's not, trust me, it is not quite as populated <laughs> out here in Winstead. Uh, Ralph Native, of course, is the founder of the American Museum of Tort Law, longtime consumer advocate, uh, several-time presidential candidate. It's always good to see you, Ralph Nader. Thank you so much for joining us on Where We Live. Thank you. It's tortmuseum.org. Thanks to our entire crew, which includes Lydia Brown, um, Tucker Ives, Katie Solarski, Kion Wolf, uh, Ryan Karen King taking pictures of us here. I continue this conversation on WNPR.org. This is Where We Live. Thank you.